1: On this episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, some of the worst hurricanes in American history.
0: There's a a jarring scene I describe in the book of people on the tip of Long Island looking out at the water and they think that a huge black or gray cloud is rolling in. And then all of a sudden they realize, no, that's a 20 to 30 foot wave coming towards them. (laughs)
1: Welcome everyone to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So yes, normally we cover crimes and criminals here, but also historical tragedies and disasters. And hurricanes definitely fit into both of those latter categories. And we are right in the middle of the 2020 Atlantic hurricane season right now, which is predicted to be worse than normal. Combine that with a brand new book out about the history of hurricanes in the Americas just released last week, and the timing was perfect. It is so great to have as a guest once again, Eric J. Dolan. If his name rings a bell, it is because he first came on the show in September of last year to share stories from his book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, The Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates. Now he's got a new book entitled A Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes. And 500 years is an awful lot of history to cover. (laughs) Thank you for coming on again.
0: Oh, thank you for having me back. It's great.
1: So how did this book come to be? Well, um... Most of my books are
0: ideas that I think up, and to to be honest, I had been thinking about writing a book on hurricanes for a number of years, but I hadn't found a single hurricane that fit the bill, because the two hurricanes that came to mind first were the Galveston hurricane of 1900, but there was already a really great book on that by um, Eric Larson called Isaac Storm. And then the hurricane of 1938, which hit New England, which is where I live. I live in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and everybody around here who's older uh, remembers the hurricane or they've been told about the hurricane. But there were a slew of books written on the hurricane of 1938. So I sort of forgot about the idea of writing a book about hurricanes. And then out of the blue, after the 2017 year of the hurricane, when Harvey, Irma, and Maria hit in quick succession, and everybody was thinking about hurricanes, my publisher contacted my agent and said, hey, would Eric be interested in writing a book on the history of America's hurricanes? So I was already primed to say yes, but I actually didn't say yes right away. I went off for about a month or two. I did a lot of research, and quickly, the scope and the the content and sort of structure of the book came into mind, and I said yes, and That's how the book was born. Uh, You you know, take good ideas wherever you can get them. And this was a nice confluence of my own interest in these meteorological behemoths and my publisher's sudden interest in these storms as well. So it was a nice uh, meeting of the minds.
1: You have so much experience writing about events on the oceans, the high seas. The subject must have, have come pretty naturally for you.
0: Uh, yeah, Uh I love the ocean. I don't live far from the ocean. When I was a little kid, I had dreams of growing up and being a marine biologist and having a TV show like Jacques Cousteau. So I've always – ocean is sort of in my uh, veins and a lot of my books do have an oceanic component. Hurricanes are things that I've read about a lot because of that in Black Flags, Blue Waters – There's a story about the 1715 hurricane that struck off of Florida and caused a bunch of treasure ships to sink. And that sort of created a gold rush of people who went down to try to dive into the water and retrieve the Spanish treasure. Many of them were unsuccessful, but those even those who were unsuccessful decided to stick around and, hey, I'll try piracy. I'm looking for money. So that was a little hurricane story that was in the pirate book. And I actually reprise part of that story in the hurricane book is just too good to leave out. So yes, having a maritime background, being interested in the ocean, also having a science background, at least biology background, not a meteorology background, made it feel more comfortable to doing this research. Although I will add that trying to understand The hardcore meteorology, and there's some real science that goes into it, was uh, difficult. It's, uh, there's a good reason that meteorologists go to school and get degrees in meteorology. It's, it's not a simple science and involves a lot of things, uh, including physics, which is one of the things that I didn't do that well in, in high school. So, (laughs) but I was able to, to get over that hurdle and, uh, I think tell the story I wanted to tell incorporating enough science to make it realistic and interesting, but not so much science to turn it into a a science book. That's just a part of the story.
1: Right, right. So perhaps we should start with a definition. What is a hurricane exactly?
0: Well, a hurricane is a swirling, spiraling storm that has winds of at least 74 miles per hour. There are five different Categories, they go all the way up to a Category 5 hurricane, which has sustained winds of 157 miles per hour. But you have to have three basic ingredients that create a hurricane. This is a very simple view of a hurricane, but you have to have warm water. Uh, You have to have water of at least 80 degrees Fahrenheit down to a depth of about 150 feet. And that provides the heat energy that powers the storm. You can't have too much wind shear. You don't want the winds going in different directions or different speeds at different heights because that will just rip apart any hurricane that develops. And you have to have a lot of moisture coming off of the ocean. And that moisture, as it rises in the air because it's expanding, it's hot, it starts to Condense and when it condenses into rain or ice crystals, there's a lot of latent heat that's given off, a huge amount of energy. And that, in fact, is the energy that fuels this massive spiraling storm that goes in a counterclockwise direction in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. So, those are the basic elements that go into a a hurricane how they are formed, Uh, there's more of that in the book. I mean, a lot of the hurricanes, about 60 to 70% of the hurricanes are actually called Cape Verde hurricanes because they originate over the Sahara Desert in Africa where there's heat, a lot of searing heat coming together with moisture from the Indian Ocean and from off the Guinea coast. And that starts to create unstable air, thunderstorms, and as those... Get swept across Africa in a westward direction by easterlies. Uh, they, it comes off the continent and then every once in a while, every maybe one, every four or five of these e- African easterly waves that comes off the continent starts to develop into a storm, and if it gets to be 39 miles per hour of circulation, circulating storm, it's a tropical storm. And only a few of those African easterly waves actually evolve or migrate from tropical storm to a hurricane. Uh, but that's only about 60 percent, 60 to 70 percent. There are some hurricanes that originate in the mi- middle of the Atlantic. And then there are also hurricanes that originate in the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico and head north. And I don't want to forget that there are hurricanes in the Pacific that hit Hawaii, but they're very, very rare. We almost had one uh, just a short while ago, Hurricane Douglas. But uh, I do talk about Hurricane Aniki in the book, which hit uh, the island of Kauai rather severely in 1992. But most of the hurricanes in the book and most of what I talk about are the ones that have come up through the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico and have hit what we consider the East Coast or the Gulf Coast of the United States. And one other thing I just want to add, because a lot of people wonder, are hurricanes called something else in other parts of the world? And yes, they are. I mean, hurricanes occur wherever there's warm water. Off of Australia, sometimes they're called willy-willies or cyclones. Uh, off of Japan and in the western Pacific, they're called typhoons. So those are all the same thing. They're basically cyclones. But here in the Atlantic and in the eastern Pacific, we refer to these massive storms as Hurricanes, which is a word that morphed from the Central American and South American uh, cultures. They had words that sounded sort of like hurricane or juricane for uh, the gods of the wild weather, basically. So the Europeans who came over adopted that word, transformed it a little bit, and it turned into hurricane in English.
1: You make an argument in your book that hurricanes during the American Revolution helped change the tide of the war in favor of the Americans. Yeah, Could you explain that?
0: Sure. I mean, think about these uh, hurricanes, these massive storms that wreak uh, devastation. It's not a, a big leap to imagine that in certain circumstances, if they hit certain areas at certain times, they would not only have an impact on the local environment, the local population, but maybe a broader impact on history. And the example of the American Revolution is one of the best because, as we know, a lot of hurricanes uh, pummel Caribbean islands. And during the American Revolution in the late 1770s, both the British and the French used their Caribbean outposts as places both to protect because they were important to the economies of the country, but also places for their fleets to go rest, repair, replenish. And the Americans, of course, desperately wanted the help of their new French allies to turn the tide against the British. And two massive hurricanes hit the Caribbean in 1780, uh, the Savannah-Lamar hurricane and the Great Hurricane of 1780, and they killed tens of thousands of people. They destroyed numerous scores of British and French ships, killed many uh, French and British mariners and soldiers, and one of the lessons that the French drew from these hurricanes in 1780 was, you know, we don't want to be here next year during hurricane season. It's a little bit too dangerous. So they had been toying with the idea of helping the Americans fight the British at some battle along the East Coast. But they spent the winter of 1780 and 1781 repairing their ships, resupplying, and they decided the next summer when hurricane season rolled around again, it's a good time now to go north and we're going to help our allies. And they ultimately uh, – De Grasse's fleet, uh, the French fleet, ultimately – helped fend off the British fleet and the Battle of the Capes or the Battle of the Chesapeake while George Washington and the French troops were battling Cornwallis in Yorktown. And they were able to, the American and French combined troops with the protection of the French fleet, which kept the British fleet at bay and basically ran them off, they were able to force uh, Lord Cornwallis, General Cornwallis, into surrendering, and that's the famous surrender at Yorktown, and that didn't end the American Revolution. A lot of people think it ended the American Revolution. It didn't. It certainly helped Kickstart the move towards peace negotiations, but there were still a couple of years left before the peace came and there were still battles to be fought. But there is no downplaying the strategic importance of the Battle of Yorktown. And uh, most historians would agree that it definitely turned the tide and was the most important battle in the entire war. And part of the reason for that battle ending the way it did was because of those hurricanes that had struck in the Caribbean just the year before.
1: Were there scientists during that era attempting at all to predict hurricanes? Uh,
0: not so Not so much at, at this time. I can go back in time. There's a very interesting story, which I talk about in the beginning of the book, about Christopher Columbus, because he's the first Westerner to come into the Caribbean, finding the quote-unquote New World, which of course had been found by the natives uh, (laughs) centuries and millennia before and also the Vikings if you count North America. But anyway, Columbus came over and uh, he has a very bad history with natives as well as other Europeans, but putting that aside, one of the things that he did do is converse with a lot of the natives, especially the Taino Indians that he met in the Antilles. And they told him about these massive storms that come by on a yearly basis. And they also told him some of the signs of these storms arriving, like a brick red sky in the morning, long swells in the ocean, and maybe strange behavior on the part of some of the animals that are sensing the change in the barometric pressure, although the Indians knew nothing about barometric pressure. Uh, so Columbus listened to what they were saying and he took it to heart. And during his first three voyages, he actually was probably on the outskirts of some tropical storms or hurricanes, but he wasn't hit directly by a hurricane. But then in his fourth voyage in 1502, he had been told by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella to stay away from Hispaniola because he had such a bad reputation there and he had done such horrible things. Uh, but when he got to Hispaniola, which is now Dominican Republic and Haiti, when he got there, he noticed the signs that the Indians had told him about. He thought a major storm was coming and he had a great desire to go into the sheltered port in Hispaniola, he asked the governor, Governor Ovando, can I bring my ships into your port to shelter from this storm? But he also told the governor, you know, you cannot send your treasure fleet. 28 ships were going to head over to Spain filled with all the gold and silver that the Spanish had ripped from the natives of Central and South America and from the mines that they established there. And Columbus said, you can't Let this fleet leave for the next eight days because there's going to be a massive storm and it's going to cause real trouble. Well, the governor totally discounted what Columbus was saying, didn't like Columbus at all anyway because of his reputation, and he said, you can't come into this port and we're going to send off the ships anyway. So you know what happened? Columbus goes along the coast of Hispaniola, finds the sheltered bay to protect him and his men, and then... Uh, the fleet takes off and within about a day or so of taking off, the hurricane comes down and sinks most of the ships. Some make it back to uh, the, the, the bay and the port. Uh, the only ship that survived the hurricane and went on to Spain was the little Aguja, which had on board all the gold and silver that the king and queen had promised to Columbus for his earlier work in the region. So when Governor Ovando put all of this together in his mind, he and other people claimed that Columbus was some kind of sorcerer or, uh, you know, uh, devil because he had predicted this storm and then it came down. And the fact is the storm, one of the people killed in the storm was the magistrate who just a few years earlier had tried Columbus and sent him back to Spain in chains. So that was further evidence that this must have been revenge on the part of Columbus. It wasn't revenge. It was just a uh, skilled mariner's ability to listen to information that he learned from the natives and to apply it and to take cover when he needed to. Uh, but I will add one other thing. It is, goes down in history as the first forecast, hurricane forecast by a Western, Westerner in history. And it was an accurate one at that. So to get back to your original question, beyond that initial example, somebody trying to forecast a hurricane. It really wasn't until the mid to late 1800s that other people in the United States and in Cuba were really actively pushing the needle in forecasting hurricanes. There were some uh, improvements in communication and understanding of hurricanes. But in the late 1700s, most people still felt that hurricanes were just God's will and nobody really understood them very well. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, And of course, stock ideas—plenty of them. To quote a listener, "It pays to listen." Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say.
1: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Men like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson definitely had an interest in meteorology, correct?
0: Right. Oh, absolutely. Benjamin Franklin in 1743. He's like our founding scientist. He was interested in everything. He, you know, the Franklin stove, electricity. He was very inquisitive. The Gulf Stream. He helped identify the Gulf Stream, but he was open to almost any discovery. And in 1743, uh, one night in 1743, I think in September, He wanted to go out and see a lunar eclipse. He was in Philadelphia. So he walked outside, but then he was sent scurrying inside because the winds picked up, the rain started to fall, clouds came in, and this terrific storm with winds from the northeast ruined his chance to see the lunar eclipse. Now because the winds were coming from the northeast, he thought the storm had come from Boston essentially. And so he was very surprised to hear from his uh, brother that, no, in Boston, the people a couple of hours earlier, or roughly about the same time, actually, they had been able to go outside and see the lunar eclipse. And then a couple of hours later, this massive storm rolled into Boston. So using that piece of information and also interviewing a bunch of people between Philadelphia and Boston, Benjamin Franklin suddenly discovered that this storm, instead of coming from Boston down to Philadelphia, it had gone from Philadelphia up the coast to Boston. Now, he didn't know that he was on the left side of a hurricane. I mean, he knew it was a hurricane, but he didn't really understand the dynamics of a swirling storm. But he was on the left side of the hurricane. On the left side, the winds are coming back in this counterclockwise direction, and uh, so he was the first person to posit that hurricanes had forward motion. They didn't erupt in one place and then die in the same place, but they had forward motion. And that motion could be contrary to the direction in which the winds that you were experiencing were coming from. And that's exactly what was happening. Now, Thomas Jefferson was a amateur Everything. I wouldn't call it an amateur. I mean, he, he made some real contributions to science, but he used to keep a log of weather, a daily log of weather, I think, for about four decades because he was hoping to come up with the rhyme and reason of weather in an effort to better predict weather and mainly because of agricultural concerns. He was a famed farmer, as everybody knows. He didn't really focus any attention on Hurricanes, but he did mention toward the end of his life how sad it was that meteorology, such an important pursuit, had not advanced much at all in recent decades. And this is during the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, when you know Linnaeus and Newton and all these people were discovering fantastic things about the natural world and our place in it. But meteorology a sort of a lesser science at the, at the time, didn't make much forward progress. And certainly between the time of Benjamin Franklin in 1743 and the early 1820s, there was essentially no progress in the understanding of what hurricanes uh, were, how they originated, and how they behaved.
1: Interesting. So who was responsible for progressing the study of hurricanes and weather prediction in general in the mid 19th century.
0: Yeah, it was a a number of people. One of the most interesting to me was a guy named William Redfield. He lived in Cromwell, Connecticut. And uh, he uh, was very inquisitive young man. And fortunately there was a doctor nearby who allowed him to use his extensive library uh, to do research. And he was especially interested in science. Um, he learned to be a saddler, and uh, he opened a small store and he wasn 't a meteorologist per se, but something happened in eighteen twenty one There was a massive hurricane that went through uh, New England it hit Connecticut as well. Unfortunately, for Redfield, his wife had died and in childbirth, and the son that was born died a few. Uh, days or weeks after. So William Redfield had the very sad task of traveling from Cromwell, Connecticut, 70 miles to the north and to the west to go to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where his in-laws lived to inform them of this horrific news. But he, always being curious, he was observant of his surroundings and he noticed that in Cromwell, All of the trees, a lot of trees had been knocked down, and all of them had been knocked down with the crowns of the trees facing towards the northwest. And then when he got to Stockbridge, he realized that the crowns of the trees were facing to the southeast in the opposite direction, and he's trying to figure out how could that have happened in a span of 70 miles? The winds were obviously coming in different directions. And then he came up with his aha moment. This storm must be a spiraling or actually a circling storm. It must be a big circle of wind. And he kept studying for the next 10 years everything he could about hurricanes. And he had developed a pretty good theory of hurricanes that they were these circular storms with a calm center and that, that rotated in a counterclockwise to sit, uh, direction in the, in the northern hemisphere and the winds got stronger and stronger as you got towards the center of the storm until you got into the eye that was very calm. But he hadn't shared this with anybody. But then in 1831, he's on a steamboat and by this time, he's a successful businessman and he owns steamboats. He makes steamboats. He's on a steamboat and there's a Yale professor on board uh Denison Olmsted who was a well-known scientist they struck up a conversation because Redfield wanted to learn a little bit about his theory of hailstorms Olmsted's well during the conversation Olmsted suddenly realized he was in the company of somebody who knew a lot about meteorology for an an amateur and Redfield decided to share his conclusions about what hurricanes were and Olmstead was thunderstruck. He said, this is great. You've got to report this in the scientific literature. Redfield said, no, uh, nobody's going to take me seriously. I'm an amateur. And finally, Olmstead convinced him only after he agreed, because Redfield asked, agreed to help him prepare the paper, and that's what happened. Redfield uh, published a couple of seminal papers that basically described what he had found about hurricanes. But that was only the beginning of the great storm controversy of the mid-1800s because there was another actual scientist named James Espy who also had a theory about hurricanes and he's the one that posited that hurricanes are giant heat engines where basically warm moist air travels up and condenses and releases latent heat and because nature abhors a vacuum, as this warm, moist air travels upward, the wind rushes in from the sides to fill the void. Now, his theory of a hurricane is not that it was circular, but basically, I mean, it was somewhat circular, but really his theory was that all the winds were rushing inwards as if you're looking at a, a spoke of a wheel. You're looking at a wheel and all the spokes go right into the center. And he thought all the winds were rushing into the center. So that was a little bit different from Redfield, and they got into this big controversy through the press and the scientific literature, and they each had their acolytes, and uh, both went to their graves in the late 1850s and 1860 thinking that they were right, but both were partially right and they were partially wrong, because what neither of them really understood was the Coriolis effect, which another amateur scientist, a guy named William Farrell, had uh, taken the Coriolis effect, the science that had been developed by Coriolis earlier in the century and applied it to meteorology and winds and how they move on the surface of the earth and basically what he found is that in the northern hemisphere, any winds that are going in a certain direction because of the Coriolis effect and because of the spinning of the earth, they will be deflected a little bit to the right. So if you think about it, any winds that are rushing into the center, like Espy thought, they're going to be diverted to the right and it's going to create a spiraling hurricane or spiraling storm, not a completely circular one like Redfield thought, but not one in which the winds rush into the center like Espy thought, it was sort of a combination of the two. And once those three things were all put together, Redfield's, Espy's, and Ferrell's work were all melded together, we get our basic understanding, which still holds today, of what a hurricane is. This mass of spiraling air uh, swirling into the center with a calm eye, with the strongest winds near the wall of the eye or in the wall of the eye, and it is the latent heat of condensation, which gives a lot of the energy uh, to the storm. So it, it's really, it was a fun part of the book to write. It was something I knew nothing about, but uh, it, it was, it, it's really fascinating to see how science and debate over scientific findings ultimately pushes you towards a Usually, a much better understanding of the phenomena that you 're trying to explain
1: yeah so you 've studied all of the major and i 'm sure a lot of the minor hurricanes in American history. What, in your estimation, was the worst <laughs> that's uh,
0: that's a tough that 's a tough one, but if I take it just in terms of the human toll it 's clear which one was the worst. At least from the United States perspective, if I'm talking about the worst, just in sheer numbers, you have to go back to that great hurricane of 1780, which may have killed as many as 22,000 people, still the all time record for a hurricane in the Atlantic. Uh, but if you're just focusing on the United States and America's history, then the Galveston hurricane of 1900 is far and away the winner. <laughs> and this is a, something you don't want to win. This is not a category you want to win, but at least 6,000 people were killed, and it's likely the number is much higher because there were a lot of people vacationing in Galveston, and there weren't as good records back in 1900 uh, about not only that but also migrant workers that were in the area. So some estimates have as many as ten or 12,000 people dying, and that still ranks as the single uh, worst in terms of death count. Uh, natural disaster in American history. And it is pretty dramatic and also equally dramatic is it basically leveled the entire city and island of, of Galveston. So that's pretty dramatic. The great hurricane of 1938 is one of my favorites because I live in New England. You know, everything's local. Politics is local. Well, history is somewhat local. I get more excited by history that is near where I live and near where I grew up and also closer to me in, in time. And that's the greatest single disaster, natural disaster in New England history. And only about 600, only, only about 680 people died, but tens of thousands of houses and boats were destroyed. But there are other ones that are right up there. I mean, Hurricane Katrina, because it was such a national event and about 1,800 people died and it was so traumatic. What happened to New Orleans is one that ranks right up there as well as the other ones that I talk about in the Rose Gallery. Hurricane Andrew was another huge hurricane in Miami and that area in 1992 that certainly focused the attention of the nation. And I would be remiss if I didn't add... 2017, the very season that sort of sp- helped spawn this book, uh, Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria, which combined damages of $265 billion. That's the worst year in recorded history for hurricane damage, cumulative hurricane damage. And part of the reason why it's seared so much in my mind and other people's minds is because of news coverage. I mean, it was just nonstop, wall to wall, the most pulse pounding reality TV you could imagine. And your hearts went out to those people who lived in uh, the path of those hurricanes and just what they were encountering and having to deal with and how many of them didn't make it through unscathed. Uh, so, I mean, I have a bunch of each hurricane while I was writing about it was fascinating me and I was totally immersed. And given that there have been many hundreds, perhaps even more than a thousand hurricanes in the last uh, 500 years that have hit essentially North America, uh, there are a lot that I don't talk about. And I know what's going to happen. This has happened in every one of my books. When I wrote a book on whaling called Leviathan, the History of Whaling in America, I got complaints from whaling ports, small whaling ports, that I didn't really talk about in the book. And when I wrote my book, Brilliant Beacons, about lighthouses, there are only about 165 lighthouses in there, but there are 1,500 that had been built. So obviously a lot of people's favorite lighthouse wasn't included. And even the pirate book. There are a lot of pirates that some people view as their favorite that I didn't talk about or I didn't talk about enough. And that's one of the things that happens when you write a history that spans centuries, sometimes as many as five centuries. As a writer, you have to make so many decisions about what not to include, and there is no way you're not going to disappoint some people who – uh, live near or experience some event that they wanted you to write about, and uh, that 's just the way it is so i I apologize on air to anybody whose favorite hurricane is not in the book, but I will argue that even if your hurricane is not mentioned it 's strange to call them your favorite because they 're devastating, but people do get attached to them if your hurricane 's not mentioned, even if your hurricane's not mentioned. Reading the book will enhance your understanding of what you lived through or what hurricane you tend to focus on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like asking, uh, who's your favorite murderer?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) It it sounds strange, just tripping off the tongue. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, right.
1: (laughs) So the Galveston Hurricane of 1900, what do you attribute the devastation to, uh, was it the severity of the hurricane itself, transportation issues, the fact that there were so many people there
0: yeah uh, it, it was a lot of things I mean first of all it 's a very powerful hurricane uh, it 's horrible. I have so many facts in my book i 'm forgetting at the moment if it was a, if it made it to category four, I think it was a category three hurricane, but we 're talking uh, extremely powerful winds one hundred and twenty miles an hour or so, but what really made it devastating was a combination of two factors. First of all, Galveston is a very low-profile, or was a very low-profile island, uh, which was connected to the mainland by bridges. At the time, uh, I think the, highest, the, the average height above sea level may have been four to five or even six feet, and I think the highest point on the island was maybe nine or ten feet above sea level. So you've got a very low profile, so a big wave is going to cause a problem, but also... Uh, Galveston has shallow water that goes way offshore. And one of the things they didn't understand at the time, meteorologists didn't understand, is the impact of the storm surge. Basically, when a hurricane is heading towards a location, it's pushing a mound of water before it that can get bigger and bigger depending on how strong the hurricane is. And unfortunately, that mound is at its greatest height on the right hand side of the hurricane. And it was the right hand side of the hurricane which plowed directly Into Galveston, and because the water is so shallow, it it it, it, the water just keeps mounting up. It doesn't have any place to go. It can't escape into deeper water, which happens to some degree with hurricanes that hit coasts that are a little bit deeper. So it was really almost a perfect storm for Galveston. But the other element that added to the incredible death toll, perhaps because this is hindsight, is that the local meteorologist Isaac Klein. And other people didn't get it right. They, he assumed that there, were, there was no possibility that a major hurricane was going to hit Galveston or cause major damage. And that was based on a mistaken understanding of hurricanes and a mistaken review, his own personal review of history. He, he really missed the boat. But because of that and because of the way the uh, central D.C. office was handling hurricanes, not letting local officials call the shots, it, it, they never put up hurricane warning signs or told the populace that a massive hurricane was bearing down on them. They did tell them there was a storm, but by the time the hurricane arrived, nobody had tried to escape. Nobody, Many people hadn't uh, sheltered in place. But even if they had advance warning, unless it was – by more than a couple of hours, it would have been very hard to get off that island. There are only a f- couple of exit routes. So all of those things combined, not, not knowing that a major hurricane was bearing down on them until the very last minute, not having a good way to get off the island being so having such a low profile that any massive storm surge or waves was bound to come crashing not only into but directly over the island and sweep everything in front of it away. All of those things added up to make it a massive disaster. And it's important to note that the people of Galveston had thought about building a seawall years before because there, there had been one other hurricane that had caused a lot of damage to the Galveston area even though it wasn't a direct hit but there was an out of sight out of mind mentality and a few seasons later there was no other no no other hurricanes and the local chamber of commerce and the people decided eh we don't need a a seawall well after the hurricane of 1900 they brought that idea out of mothballs and they not only built a, an enormous very long and 16 foot high concrete seawall they also literally raised the height of the whole island as much as 15 or 16 feet. They jacked up all the buildings, they brought in fill from offshore, and they created a new higher Galveston that is rimmed by a massive wall. And it was a good investment because in 1915, another hurricane of almost equal magnitude hit Galveston and the death toll was very small and uh the destruction to buildings was far less so it was a good investment and it's one that other areas have done uh, Corpus Christi uh, Lake Okeechobee which has been hit by a number of massive Hurricanes are the remnants of massive hurricanes. Uh, there's now a huge berm and wall around that to keep the lake from sloshing out and destroying all the communities that ring the lake. So all of those things contributed to making Galveston a real uh, meteorological and human disaster.
1: The Great Hurricane of 1938, the one that you are especially intrigued by, <laughs> because of the area you live in. One of the fascinating things about the timing of that is that it came right at the brink of World War II, adding another layer of anxiety to an intensely stressful time.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, In fact, uh, the people on Long Island and Connecticut and New York, the same day that the hurricane hit in uh, 1938, were reading about... Uh, Hitler's vitriolic speeches and his taking over of Sudetenland, and he was already starting to march on parts of Europe with very little uh, opposition at the time from European powers and certainly uh, none from uh, the United States. So it was a very tense uh, time in the news, but uh, the Weather Bureau, uh, the precursor of the National Weather Service, and there's a long explanation of this in the book. It's fascinating. But essentially what happened is they got it wrong. This hurricane that was coming up from sort of the Caribbean, it was a Cape Verdean hurricane, coming across the Atlantic and then curved up the coast, based on the limited information that they had, uh, because a lot of ships had scattered, so there was no radio telegraphy uh, or radio messages coming from ships saying, hey, there's a hurricane we just encountered. It's coming up the coast, so there weren't a lot of data points. There was only one person in the Weather Bureau, a new guy. He'd only been there about a year, a guy named Pierce, and he looked at the data, and he said, you know, this hurricane is going to hit New York or New England. Well, his boss, Mitchell, and the other meteorologists in the Weather Bureau looked at the same data and said, you know, it's not. At worst, they're going to get gale force winds, which is nothing that New Englanders and Long Islanders haven't had to cope with in the past. But what happened is for many hours, they had no information on the hurricane, and this hurricane took off. It was traveling 50 maybe 60 miles per hour later it was called the long island express so on september 21st in the afternoon when people were expecting gale force winds and the morning had been brilliantly sunny and nice all of a sudden this massive category three hurricane plows into the tip of long island and into new england and essentially caught everybody unawares and what made it even worse is that it hit so hard that local communications were wiped out. So the people who were being hit didn't even have an opportunity to send out alarm signals up the coast. So it was uh, very traumatic. There's a, a jarring scene I describe in the book of people on the tip of Long Island looking out at the water, and they think that a huge black or gray cloud is rolling in. And then all of a sudden they realize, no, that's a 20 to 30 foot wave coming towards them. And uh, that wave just funneled up uh, Narragansett Bay and really did a number on Providence, Rhode Island. There are still plaques marking how high the water went in downtown. It went about 13, almost 14 feet high. And uh, 680 people died, mostly in, in Rhode Island. And it was a traumatic event. And there are a lot of amazing stories that came out of it. One of them that I find Interesting because it involves a celebrity is Catherine Hepburn, uh, the great actress who had already won uh, an Oscar at that point. She was in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, at her parents' summer house. In the morning, she played around golf. She even got a hole in one, and it was one of her best scores. And then she went home with a friend of hers, and there were three other people at the house. And she went for a swim. But by the time they got out of the water in the early afternoon, the waves were already starting to kick up a little bit and it was getting uh windier and the sand was blowing in their face. They went back to this big rambling uh mansion along the beach and all of a sudden the wind really picked up because it, it came in very, very fast. And the laundry room of the house got ripped away and then they realized that the house, the foundation was going to give way. So the five people escaped the house in this dramatic storm with rain and wind and they had a rope that they were holding so they could stay with each other. They went to a nearby hillier area that had a closed in. On it. They broke into the inn and that's where they spent their time. But Catherine Hepburn remembers looking back and seeing her parents' house drifting in water. It had been wrenched free from its foundation and sort of drifting away, as she said, easy as pie. And then when she finally called her father a couple of hours later to let him know that uh, your wife and uh, me, your daughter, and another kid were, were all okay. The father who apparently had a good sense of humor, he goes, well, you didn't have sense enough to throw a match into the house before it took off because we're insured for fire. (laughs) (laughs) So that was was sort of a humorous story, I guess, at the end that had a good ending, but there are other stories in the book where uh, people unfortunately died, very, very traumatic and and I've never – I mean, just share one other thing, a couple of people have asked me, have I ever lived through a hurricane? And, and the answer is really – is no. I've lived through the remnants of hurricanes. When Hurricane Sandy hit uh, basically landfall in New Jersey, it was such a huge storm, 1,000 miles wide, 900 miles wide, that we felt – Serious impacts here in Massachusetts. So I went down to the water. I saw these huge waves or a lot of branches that fell. Electricity was knocked out, but that's not like living through the heart of a hurricane. When Hurricane Bob hit New England and the Cape, I was here as well. It was, it was not as traumatic for me, but you know, I I do remember (laughs) this is a silly story. I didn't put it in the book. But during Hurricane Bob, the remnants of which a lot of heavy winds hit Boston, I was a graduate student at MIT, and at the time I ran a lot. And at the height of the the hurricane, I don't, I don't even know if it was a hurricane at that point, but the winds were really whipping along the Charles River. I went out and I went for a run along the Charles River, and it was tough because I was being Pushed all over the place. But the one thing I remember most, the one little thing that gave me a sense of how powerful these winds were is all of a sudden I got whacked in the forehead by a wet leaf. And here it's a leaf hitting your forehead. It really hurt. It was going so fast and it hit me and it was such a surprise. And then all I could think, not so much then, but now just imagine that's nothing. Just imagine if 120-mile-an-hour, 140-mile-an-hour winds are bearing down on your house. Uh, I just I just can't imagine it, but so many people have lived through those, those uh, kinds of storms, and unfortunately, many people haven't survived. And the one thing you find is that people who have lived through a hurricane, they have such vivid stories of what happened. And a lot of those stories, obviously, made their way into my book.
1: So let's say I have a listener interested in, in buying a home on the coast somewhere in the United States. <laughs> what area is historically the worst place to live in terms of hurricanes?
0: Okay, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble because I love all the states. <laughs> but if you're just looking at statistics, um, it is hands down the worst state to be in is Florida because Florida is where... 40 percent of all of the hurricane strikes take place. But uh, also residents after Florida, the, the next few in terms of the highest number of strikes, highest number of hurricanes on average, it goes Florida, Texas, North Carolina, Louisiana, and South Carolina. And then after that, you fall off. But Even if you want to live in those states, it depends on where you live and what kind of building you live in. Unfortunately, a lot of people live in houses that are right on the shore, only a couple of feet above sea level, and unless those houses are built extremely well, if a big hurricane comes by, they're going to be in trouble. So if I was giving advice – I mean, I'd love to live on the ocean. I live about a quarter mile from the actual ocean, but if I – did have a house on the ocean. Marblehead's a pretty good place because it's got a lot of huge rocky outcroppings. So there are a number of houses that are actually on the coast, but they're 20 to 30 feet above high uh, mean high tide. (laughs) So you're in pretty good shape. Although there have been storms. I think Sandy actually caused this to happen, or maybe it was just a nor'easter that came by. But there were some houses that were right on the coast, uh, one of which a huge like seventy pound, eighty pound boulder was flung up from the ocean a good thirty feet into the air and went through one of the plate glass windows in the house. So even if you're high up, if the storm's big enough, you can have problems. But they're definitely Florida is the place that gets hit by the the most hurricanes and the most tropical storms and uh makes sense. It's just sort of sticking out there like a thumb, the bottom of the uh the country. And surrounded by very warm water. And right now, as we're, as we're talking and recording this, uh, tropical storm, I think it's called a Zaeus, I, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but is heading towards Florida. Whether it'll hit Florida and whether it'll become a hurricane, we don't know. Uh, so I won't give real estate advice. Live where you want, but just be smart about it and do your d- due diligence and make sure you're not putting yourself intentionally in harm's way.
1: So we're all familiar with Hurricane Katrina. It was national news, twenty-four hours a day, uh, for weeks. And on your list of most hit, Louisiana is definitely there. Uh, the the state was ill-equipped for with their levees and everything for the intensity of Katrina. Are are you surprised at this point in the, in the twenty-first century that we haven't learned our lessons from hurricanes in the past and better prepared ourselves?
0: Uh yes and no. Certain areas have uh you know have great evacuation plans in place. Uh have a populace who understands the the real threats and is willing to give local pol- politicians the benefit of the doubt even if they make a wrong call and they'll they'll evacuate. Uh other parts of the country are perhaps not as hurricane aware or concerned, but the real issue is to defend against hurricanes like in Louisiana or New Orleans, to build a good levee system is incredibly expensive and to maintain it and to have good evacuation plans, this takes a lot of planning, a lot of forethought and oftentimes a lot of money and money is often in short supply and there may be other uh, needs that people feel are more immediate or more urgent. So any kind of hurricane planning, whether it be individual planning or societal or local community planning, is is uh, contingent upon the resources you have and the time you have to put into it. But what was happening in Hurricane Katrina? It wasn't just that the levee system was not properly maintained and parts of it were shoddily built. That's certainly true. It was designed to handle a Category 3 hurricane, which is exactly what Katrina was, but clearly it could not handle Katrina. But there are other things that went into it. One of them is that Louisiana, just like a lot of coastal areas, is famous for decades and centuries worth of decisions that sacrifice coastal wetlands for development, Coastal wetlands are nature's answer to absorbing the impact of hurricanes in effect. They have been there since time immemorial, and they've lived through hurricanes, and they don't get totally washed away. They can get damaged, but uh, natural ecosystems and wetlands are amazing sponges and sort of breaks on the waves and surges that come in from hurricanes. But Louisiana had... Uh, eliminated hundreds of thousands uh, of acres. I think I think the equivalent of the size of Delaware, um, or more. Again, I can't remember if that's per year or over time. But those decisions, those development decisions, create a ticking time bomb. Plus, New Orleans, the area that got hit most heavily, most of the city is uh, six feet under sea level. So it's like a big dish. Surrounded by walls. It's almost inviting, uh, flooding at some point if you breach the walls. So it's an interesting place to have put a city. And even back in the 1800s, there were levees around, uh, New Orleans because they knew they had to protect from the Mississippi River and Lake Pontchartrain and other things, uh, and the Mississippi and, uh, the Gulf itself. So, New Orleans had a lot of structural problems built in that when the big one, as they called it, finally came by, and this wasn't even a truly huge one. At one point, Hurricane Katrina was a Category 5. If it had stayed a Category 5, just imagine how much worse, and it's hard to imagine how much worse it could have been, but it could have been a lot worse. Plus, Katrina didn't hit New Orleans head on, but it still delivered a mighty blow. Now I have a coda to this story that is not encouraging because after Hurricane Katrina, the government pumped in, I think it was $90 billion, and the local communities and local state, state and local government have spent a lot and they've focused on hurricane planning, and they realized they had to fix all of these levees and walls that were encircling uh, New Orleans. And they did, and they spent billions and billions of dollars on it. But while I was researching the book, uh, I discovered a Federal Register notice and a civil engineering report done by I think, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And basically, the punchline is that after investing all of this money, the new ring of protective structures are slowly sinking into the sediment around New Orleans, and they're not going to... Uh, give the kind of protection that they had been built to give and right now they're trying to figure out what to do about that, the subsidence and so it might be that if another Hurricane Katrina came along, another Category 3 that didn't even hit New Orleans head on, given the state of the current protective armature around the city, there might be another disaster You just don't know. I'm I'm not predicting that. And I hope that never happens. But even after spending billions of dollars, it turns out that the fix has some problems that are going to have to be fixed somehow.
1: Are we seeing a higher frequency of hurricanes now than we did 500 years ago?
0: Well, 500 years ago, we have no way of knowing. I mean, people can do uh, weather archaeology, I suppose, meteorological archaeology. But I, I know of no uh, analysis that has been able to tell you exactly how many hurricanes hit, you know, in the 1500s, 1600s. It's more recent times. The really good records go back to the roughly 1851, uh, maybe the decade before that. The National Weather Service has, but. Whether there's been an increase in the number of hurricanes since that time, uh, I, I don't think there's been much of an increase, if there has been at all. But the, the real question is, and the question in everybody's mind, are hurricanes that do happen, are they stronger now because of global warming? And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of scientific studies that clearly show that a warming world is likely to cause stronger and wetter hurricanes. It might cause hurricanes to slow down and linger in place. Uh, but uh, determining a clear cause and effect impact and telling us exactly what hurricanes are going to be like and how many of them there might be and how strong and wet they might be in the future in a warmer world, I, the science is not quite there. there there's, there's a lot of Unknowns. It's very difficult to model that, although after my book was published, there was another very reputable scientific study that made a stronger link over the last 30 or 40 years showing that there has been an uptick in the number of major hurricanes, which is category three and above. Uh, but if you're a policy person and if you're a betting person and you want to protect yourself from an even fiercer future... I think personally that it is a very good bet, not only because of hurricanes, but because myriad other reasons for us to take global climate change and global warming seriously and do what we can to minimize the increased warming of the world, because it's not just hurricanes that might get worse. There are a lot of other uh, things that are going to happen that we're not going to like at all. So. Uh, anyway, I, the epilogue of the book talks about the science, what we know about hurricanes and the interaction between that and global warming. And it's becoming – it's very persuasive. There's mounting evidence, but it's not a slam dunk. We, we, the scientists would be the first to tell you there are still some unknowns. It's very hard to model the future. But what we do know and what the best minds who have been working on this tell us is not encouraging at all.
1: Oh boy. Well, I've got one more question that will hopefully offer a bit more levity here at the end. Who came up with the crazy system of of naming hurricanes?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a fascinating story. Um, Essentially, let me tell you real quick, because I know we're coming to the end of our time. You know, going back centuries, people would name hurricanes, you know, the great colonial hurricane, the hurricane of 1938, just the year it happened or maybe something about the locality where it happened, the Lake Okeechobee hurricane of 1928. But then in the 1940s, the military in the Pacific started naming hurricanes after women. And that goes back to a guy named Clement Raggy in Australia. You have to read the book to get his story. It is one of the most interesting stories in the book. But anyway, he used to call hurricanes or cyclones that took place off Australia after Tahitian maidens. And that plus a very famous book called Storm by George Rippey Stewart in 1941, which was sent to all GIs, which also called a storm Mar- Mariah. That's probably the reason that the Pacific, in the Pacific Theater – during World War II, they were calling typhoons female names. But in the Atlantic, in the early 1950s, the Weather Bureau decided to use a Navy, Army-Navy phonetic al- alphabet like Abel Baker Charlie. And then there was another phonetic alphabet that other people used and it started to get confusing. But finally, by 1956, the Weather Bureau decided to name hurricanes after women. And there was some pushback. Some women complained that it's really horrible to equate a woman's name with this, this vicious meteorological event. Uh, another woman said that she would much rather be, have her house be struck by a, an unnamed hurricane than one named after one of her husband's former girlfriends. But despite, <laughs> despite the protestations, the Weather Bureau went ahead and started in, I think, 1956 it was, naming hurricanes after women. But then in the 1960s, what happens? Well, the women's movement really takes off. It had been going strong for many, many decades, of course, but a different phase of it started to take off in the 1960s. The National Organization of Women was very active, and one of the vice presidents, Roxy Bolton from uh, Florida, decided – She didn't want hurricanes to be named after women and she was infuriated because all of the news would report on hurricanes and call hurricanes, you know, witches and, and, uh, Actually, some called them sluts and vicious and mean and all these nasty adjectives associated with female named hurricanes. So Roxy Bolton tried to get the Weather Bureau to change the naming system. She recommended, why don't we call them himicanes instead of hurricanes? Or why don't we... Why don't we call them after name them after senators? Because senators likes having things named after them. Well, that didn't go anywhere. Uh, she tried valiantly, but then Jimmy Carter was elected, and Jimmy Carter appointed Juanita Kreps to be the Secretary of Commerce, the first female Secretary of Commerce, who was an avowed, uh, self-identified feminist. Well, she knew what Roxy Bolton was doing, and she had heard that Australia a few years before, started naming hurricanes or typhoons or cyclones after men and women on an alternating basis. And she thought that that's what the United States should do. At the time, the World Meteorological Organization was in charge of naming. So with American influence, in 1979, we got the system that we have today, which is where we name hurricanes alternately after men and women. But This summer is going to be, apparently, a very active hurricane season. We've already had uh, uh, nine tropical storms, a couple of hurricanes, and uh, we might break records. And tropical storms get named, and that name gets transferred to the hurricane if it it becomes a powerful enough storm and makes that leap. If we have more than 21 tropical storms, named tropical storms, they're going to have to go to the Greek alphabet because each of the lists that alternates between men and women only has 21 names on it. So it might be this, uh, this summer that we run out of male-female names.
1: Wow, that's, that's wild. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your favorite song from the musical Paint Your Wagon?
0: <laughs> oh, they call the wind Mariah. Because that actually has something to do with that, that book called Storm by, uh, George Rippey Stewart, which was a huge bestseller in the early 1940s. Even though that movie is about a mining town and is not about a hurricane, uh, in his book, he said that the storm that he named Maria, or that the meteorologist in the book named Maria, it should be pronounced Mariah, not Maria. And that's a great song in fact while I was researching the book I uh, listened to it multiple times on on YouTube uh and it's it's, it's a wonderful powerful song
1: <laughs> Oh it's a great song uh, Clint Eastwood <laughs> sings sings it doesn't
0: he Not that I know of. <laughs> there's I don't think it was Clint I don't think it was Clint Eastwood I can I can, I can envision the actor now it he's a good-looking guy but I don't think he was Clint Eastwood. But maybe in a later version, maybe, maybe Clint Eastwood, I wouldn't
1: put it past him. He could do anything. <laughs> I know Lee Marvin is in it. But, but I thought yeah. Clint Eastwood was the other guy. I, I'm probably wrong.
0: <laughs> Everybody's going to be Googling it now.
1: <laughs> well, well, this has been great. So your book, uh, when is it available? And can you tell us more about that?
0: Sure. It publishes on August 4th. Uh and this is gonna be the strangest book launch I've ever lived through uh between COVID nineteen, uh Black Lives Matter, the election, the protests in various cities. I mean, there are so many enormous, huge news stories, and especially COVID nineteen, which has turned almost all of my book talks into virtual talks and closed down a lot of bookstores or made browsing more difficult. It is the this is the strangest year I've ever been alive and the most tragic, and also um, the strangest book launch I am sure I will ever experience. But nevertheless, it is easy to get this book. You can get it at any uh, independent bookstore. Many of them are giving curbside service, and by the time you hear this, uh, maybe more of them will be open to browsing. I know some in my state are, so you can go into independent bookstore, or you can get it at any online bookstore, from Amazon to Barnes & Noble to Books A Million, and, uh, and also you can go into the Barnes & Noble we will be carrying it. So any place that you get your books, you can get a copy of of this one. And uh, I've written 14 books now, and I think – I'm not just saying this. I think this is one of my best. It was really fun writing it. I, I think it's a very dramatic and easy read. Uh, oh, I've tried. I don't like, uh, not that I don't like, but this is not an academic book. This is a popular narrative history meant to inform you, but not make it painful.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you again.
0: Sure. Well, thank you for having me back. I really enjoyed talking with you.
1: After talking to Eric J. Dolan about his book, A Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes... I had to go listen to Clint Eastwood sing his song from Paint Your Wagon. Yes, he was in it, but I was very wrong. It's not They Call the Wind Mariah that he sings, but I Talk to the Trees. (laughs) Uh, Still worth a listen. I am going to try my hand here at a little verse of They Call the Wind Mariah just to take us out today. Way up north they got a name. For rain and wind and fire The rain is Tess The fire is Joe And they call the wind Mariah 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 They call the wind Maria.